Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, your angels will join us, and that we might come into the, the unity of love that you have designed for your creation. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our quarterly worship, and the lesson title this week is Worship and Song and Praise. What comes to mind when you think of the title for this week's lesson? Worship and Song and Praise. Okay, so this is a question that I think, what songs have you experienced in your life that have, that have been blessings to you, that you've really felt that spiritually uplifted you? Just throw out some names of songs. Messiah. Messiah, okay. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art, okay. Any others? Silent Night. You know, it's not surprising to me that in the, in the very first few that were thrown out, Amazing Grace was thrown out. Amazing Grace was written um, in, by John Newton in 1779. And as you know, he was a former slave ship captain who had given up a belief in God and actually denied and rejected Christ and mocked and made fun of those who believed in God. And then one day on a, uh, the ship was in a battered and terrible storm and was threatened to go down and and he uh, cried out to the Lord, and the, sh- the ship was saved, and he began to reevaluate his life, and taught himself after that. He taught himself Latin, Greek, and theology, and uh, eventually became a, a minister, and was, as a minister wrote the song Amazing Grace. Who hasn't been blessed by the song Amazing Grace over the years? Uh, uh, it's purported to be the most famous Christian hymn. It's been, uh, it, it's reported today that it's still performed up to 10 million times a year around the world. And it's been on the top 10 charts in pop music more than one occasion since the 1960s. So what is it about Amazing Grace that has such an enduring popularity? It's the story of my life. It's the story of, of our lives? Uh-huh. There's a, a recognition and a thanksgiving Giving. Yeah, yeah. A recognition of our need and a admission of our helplessness and an acknowledgement of our deliverance and a hope of our future. All in the song. It's really good. Yeah, really good. Memory verse this week, it says, Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Psalms 96.1. What do you think the passage means by a new song? Did you? Did anybody read Psalms ninety six this week? The song of Psalms ninety six. The song. It's it's a it's a song that we recognize God for who He really is as Creator, Redeemer, source of righteousness, source of goodness. That's what the the song is about. Why do you think this is a new song? We're singing a song about who God really is. Yes. Because we're living in a place where the truth about God has been so covered up that when we really do see it, it's new. You said that we're living in a place that the truth about God is so covered up that when we really see it, it is new to us. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. 
says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, his name, who had his name and his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a sound of, from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like the harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What is this talking about? A, a new song? A song of salvation. It's our experience. Well, only 144,000 that will have that experience. So nobody else could sing a song, their new song like that, because nobody else will have experienced it. What experience will they have? Of going there. Being redeemed. What do you think the song will be like? Anybody want to want to give us some, some verses to that song? We will all have been redeemed that go to heaven. But right. those of the 144,000 will have gone through the time of trouble. They will be the ones that experienced still being alive when Christ comes. And only those that have experienced that, that trouble some time, will be able to sing that song. Not all the redeemed will experience it. Only those that have gone through it. Our songs are somewhat unique because we all have different experiences. As we have a common experience, the 144,000 going through a common time in earth history, a common experience of deliverance, a common time of trouble, a common translation experience, that they will have a, a song to sing together that those who lived previously won't have that experience to sing. These are people who have uh, exercised their individual liberties of uh, of of judgment, of reasoning, standing up for what they believe, all all balanced with being based on Scripture. They have they have stood up. They have um, uh, that has been their experience. Their their hips have agreed with their lips. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. So, do you think this is going to be an actual song or is it metaphorical? I think we'll actually sing, or do you think that, that the scripture is using metaphor to talk about this is a song that they will sing? Um, you know, like some might say, it's a it's a new verse. They have a new verse. Pardon? You think it's real? We'll actually sing. Okay. Um, and and so the the theme of the new song will be our experience of deliverance. What's the old song? If this is the new song, what's the old song? Hopelessness, I heard. Yeah. This is my silliness again, but if they're all going to sing, sing the same song, the same words, and the same verse, how have they practiced it that they all know what they're going to sing? <laughs> if they well, can all sing it together. Better yet, I know people who really can't sing. <laughs> what? Make a joyful noise, and so it's going to be noisy. And I praise him for this, and I, you know, I don't think it's going to be a melody type song. Maybe it's like the maybe it's like the military cadence. You know, when you're when you're marching, the the, the drill sergeant shouts the verse, and the troops sing it back. Maybe it's the, you know, kind of like that. Somebody leads out and somebody re- re- echoes it back. I don't know. We'll see. I think we're going to have some fun times as we look at this. Um, I guess the question is how do we learn to sing the new song? Is that your question? Well, don't we have to have the experience? 
if it's a song of our experience. The only way to learn the new song is to go through the experience of a transformed life and live and make those tough decisions. It's a song of our experience. Um, would it require us to have a new experience with God in order to learn this song? To come to know him as he really is in Christ. Yes. Yes. So is it so much that we're going through tough times that allows us to sing this? Or is it our knowledge of who God is that creates that incredible feeling of wanting to just shout it to the heavens? Yeah, this is out of um, Great Controversy, page 648, 649. And I'm going to just skip down to the the part here. It says, And they sing a new song before the throne, a song which no man can learn save the 144,000. It is a song of Moses and the Lamb, a song of deliverance. None but the 144,000 can learn that song, for it is the song of their experience, an experience such as no other company have ever had. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been translated from the earth, from among the living, are counted as the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. So there is something about that experience that gives them some different uh, perspective, maybe, to share in their song. Which song are we singing today? Or are we singing a song? Do we have a song to sing, or do we remain silent? And what do you think about the Bible's admonitions to shout? It says in Leviticus 9.24, we discussed last week, that when they gave the, the dedication of the, of the sacrificial offering to the, to the dedicating of the sanctuary, that all the people shouted for joy. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever the ark of the Lord was brought into the camp, there would be shouts of joy, shouts of triumph. Do we miss something if we don't shout in church? <laughs> Were they in church? They were at the sanctuary. That's where they were. The offering. The, uh, the dedication sanctuary. That's where they were. The, the, right, I mean, as, as close as they could get to the holy place, not being priests, that's where they were. Shouting. I think to myself, when we're called to shout, the, the whole physiological experience inside your body and inside your heart, you are standing up and you are just exhibiting out as far as you can this that's inside of you and letting it flow out. It's almost like an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of the double blessing of the Holy Spirit. And when we're called to stand firm and stand up, and when you think of God as the magnificent creator of the whole universe who is our God and creator that we are worshiping as ambassadors, what a honor it is to shout his name in praise. Yeah, I, I like where you're going with this. Um, think about this. How did the people in Europe react when the Allied troops entered their cities to free them from Nazi occupation. What did the people do when the Allied troops entered? Was there shouting going on? Yes. Yeah. Um, how did the people across the world, America, act when the announcement VE Day, Victory in Europe? All through it. You've seen the pictures in time and stuff, right? What was happening across America? What were people doing? What were they shouting about? What happens in a football game when your team scores a touchdown in the last five seconds of the game? 
is there shouting? Why is there shouting? Is there something in common with those people shouting in Europe, shouting at the, pardon? They want Victory. Victory. Is there, is there a victory that we need to be shouting about? When Christ, when we see Christ coming in the clouds, the graves are open, the skies are unfolding, angels are winging their way to and fro, carrying the saved to Christ, our mortal bodies are being transformed into immortal ones. Will there be shouting? Or will we have some people going, shh, be reverent? (laughs) Shouting? Shouting. Shouting, Shouting. yeah. Do we have anything to shout about now? We don't talk a whole lot about victorious living, though. We don't talk a whole lot about victory. Yes, we don't talk about victory. We don't talk about victorious living. So we don't talk about it. Do we experience it? Do we have victory? Why are we so solemn and reserved and afraid to shout? Do we fail to see the significance of what Christ has done for us? Or are we so damaged by sin that we can't react to what Christ has done to us? Are we, are we so damaged by misrepresented pictures and abusive pictures of God in our mind that we can't shout? When the people in Europe were being liberated by the Allied troops, they were shouting. Those same Allied troops delivered and rescued people in the concentration camps, what did they do? They stared. Their faces were flat. They didn't shout. They didn't celebrate. And we more like the people in the concentration camps. Christ has come to deliver us and we stare and we're solemn and we don't shout. This is out of Testimonies to Ministers, page 175. Get your mind around this. Through the cunning devices of the enemy, the minds of God's people seem to be incapable of comprehending and appropriating the promises of God. What are his devices? Lies primarily about God. Through his cunning devices of misrepresenting God, our minds seem to be incapable of appropriating the promises of God. They seem to think that only the scantest showers of grace are to fall upon the thirsty soul. The people of God have accustomed themselves to think that they must rely upon their own efforts, that little help is to be received from heaven, and the result is that they have little light to communicate to other souls who are dying in error and darkness. The church has long been contented with little of the blessing of God. They have felt, they have not felt the need of reaching up to the exalted privileges purchased for them at infinite cost. Their spiritual strength has been feeble. Their experience of a dwarfed and crippled character, and they are disqualified for the work. Disqualified for the work the Lord would have them do. They are not able to present the great and glorious truths of God's holy word that would convict and convert souls to the agency of the Holy Spirit. The power of God awaits their demand and reception. A harvest of joy will be reaped by those who sow the holy seeds of truth. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing sheaves with him. The world has received the idea from the attitude of the church that God's people are indeed a joyless people, that the service of Christ is unattractive, that the blessing of God is bestowed at severe cost to the receivers, By dwelling upon our trials and making much of difficulties, we misrepresent God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, 
for the path to heaven is made unattractive by the gloom that gathers about the soul of the believer, and many turn in disappointment from the service of Christ. But are those who thus pre- are, but are those who thus present Christ believers? No. What do y'all think? Who are we like? Are we like those who've been delivered and set free? Do we have something to rejoice and shout about and sing song and praise? Or are we kind of like those concentration camp people, also set free, but so demoralized, so destroyed in our minds, so, so having accepted a distorted God concept that we just are morose? Yes? I think that's why it's important as Christians that it's obvious when we are going through a bad time in our life, regardless of what it's concerning, people see it in our countenance, they see it in our actions and stuff like that, that when we get through it, I feel like when I've gotten through something like that, I'm still alive. I praise God that I'm just alive, that I've experienced it and come through it. So it's important that people hear and see you praise God at times like this, you know, because it's only through His grace that we have made it through. Thoughts? Other thoughts about this? Any other comments? Is it sobering to think about? Yeah. Yeah. I've been to churches who have as part of their service a praise moment in which the entire church will stand and look to heaven and shout praises to God in heaven. Would you be comfortable with that? No. Why? Well, maybe it becomes a ritual. We do it every... Okay, we all stand up and praise God. Does it have meaning now? Much like uh, like a hymn each week? Yeah. No, it's a different... <laughs> <laughs> yes. For me growing up is that it's such a learned experience of you come to church and you're quiet. Um, and for me, you asked if I would be comfortable with that. Yes, I would, because that's what I do in my home. And so I feel like if I do that with God in my home, why would I not be able to do it in public? Because I talk to God like he's right there. So I think, you know, over the generations, we've just become a learned behavior of when we're in public, we don't need to show our emotions and when we're at home, it's okay because that's the appropriate place to do it. She just answered the question why we don't do it in our church. And which is? Everybody is comfortable in a different way. In other words, for her, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, that would be uncomfortable. Now, I talk to God every day too, but I don't jump and shout when I talk to him at home. See? So for me, that would be uncomfortable in church to stand up and jump and shout. But it's uncomfortable for her, so... In a church environment where you have several hundred people, you know, one jumping up and shouting here, maybe one waving their arms and praising God there, maybe one falling on the floor and rolling around here, and maybe, you know, is it comfortable? Yeah, you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of pushing the envelope there. <laughs> I have been to a church, not our religion, where they actually got on and rolled down the aisle. Yeah, I, I know. And, and when you said that, uh, that, you know, I was thinking immediately of the fruits of the Spirit, where when the Spirit comes, we get greater self-control. Self-governance, self-control, last fruit of the Spirit. We don't lose control. So, yeah, I would agree with you. That would make me uncomfortable. But shouting praises and joy uh, is not the same thing as loss of control, is it? But our church claps instead of shouts. Yeah. And boy, I remember growing up as a kid, clapping was, uh, woo. no, 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 no. No, that clapping was, uh, was, you know, that was right up there with uh, getting water above your knee on Sabbath, you know. <laughs> yes. I think you have to think about the purpose of the particular worship service. Is the focus on God or is it on me? Is the focus on praising Him, His majesty, His love, or is it on me and my experience? Or is it on the performer? 
No, exactly. No, I, I agree with that. But I, I, I got to tell you, even even in the tradition, the traditional, you know, um, string quartet for special music, musicians can really go up there with no desire to praise God, but all about getting glory to themselves to be the best musician. I mean, it, it really, it can be, we can't really judge the heart. Right. Yeah. So, all right, Sunday's lesson. Dr. Jenny. Yes. You mentioned as a child you were quiet. We've no, no, I mentioned as a child I was supposed to be quiet. <laughs> I had a hard time with that, believe it or not. <laughs> Go ahead. My husband and I, in, in his work, we would, as he would baptize the children or talk with the children, he would say during the song, that's the time that you, you can take part in as a child and just sing as loud as you want to. And he would stand up. And my, what a force he was standing, <laughs> you know, just as loud as he could. And we felt that that was praising God. My wife is shaking her head. Yeah, you've been with my husband, haven't you? <laughs> and the children that, uh, that were usually in the churches, they would just really get to the top of their voices. I like it. I like it. Yeah, it's good. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. God chose Saul as the first king of Israel because he matched the description the people had requested. But when God chose David to be the next king of Israel, he reminded Samuel that the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. Um, what's the lesson here? What matters to God? The heart. And I have this in, with my patients frequently. They get discouraged because they may struggle with some loss of ability. Loss of ability. Is ability and character the same thing? No. no. And I have to point this out to people. People lose ability. Maybe they, maybe they have a, a, a genetic disability. They've got dyslexia. Maybe they have blindness, paralysis, mental illness of some kind. This does not disqualify someone for God's service. God is interested in character. And I point out to my patients all the time, a person with a disability can still have Christ-like character. Can still be honest and faithful and true and loving and kind and gracious character is what God's looking at. We're going to get new abilities, guys. We're all going to get new abilities. New brains, new bodies, better abilities than we have now. What we don't get when Christ comes, we don't get new character then. We're supposed to receive that character now. And that's, that's the focus. That's where God's looking to see if we're getting that character. Next paragraph says, um, David was far from being perfect. In fact, some would argue that David's Later moral lapses were much more serious than Saul's sins. Yet the Lord rejected Saul, but forgave even David's worst mistakes, allowing him to continue to be king. What made the difference? What made the difference? David had a contrite heart. Saul didn't. Um, Did God know beforehand what David was going to do? Now that's a whole different discussion, but we're going to make for the assumption, let's assume he did. Let's assume uh, God has foreknowledge and he knew that, uh, that David was going to do this. Why did God choose him? In his heart. I mean, would you choose someone heart, God to be, what, president of the United States, to be president of uh, the corporation, to be pastor of your church, uh, if you knew that they were going to end up sealing uh, one of their people's wives, murdering the guy? Why did God choose him? What does this tell us about how God selects people? Unless you take the position God didn't know and God was shocked. Oh my, my. 
David, how could you? I don't take that position. I think God knew. Absolutely. Some people do take that position. I respect that. But under the premise that God did know, what, is it, what do we learn from that? What did God know about Noah? What did he know about Aaron? What about <laughs> Job, you said? No. Somebody said somebody else. Um, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Peter. And these are all examples for us, and it shows us that even when we fall and make mistakes, there's still hope for us. Is our fitness for God's cause based on our perfection? That's the point. Okay, we have no perfection to bring. We're all sick and sinful in heart, yes. We all have different acts or symptoms of what sin is, and some don't show as much as others, but they're still there. And that isn't what uh, God bases his love for us on, the symptoms. He's trying to heal us from those symptoms. Yes, outwardly, outwardly, as far as what was done publicly, um, <clears throat> who, was, who was more fit? Saul. 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 Okay, but in heart, who was more fit? Yes, and, and, and what was the key here? See, none of us are perfect. Our fitness for God's cause is based on our willingness, our heart attitude, our surrender to him, not our performance per se. We may stumble, we may make mistakes, but if we remain humble, willing to learn from mistakes, willing to be corrected, reproved, redirected, if we can unlearn things and are willing to give ourselves to God and others, then we're useful to his cause, aren't we? Isn't that the, isn't that the key? What do you all think? It was like the prodigal son. It was the one that stayed home that God couldn't deal with his heart. It was the one that went astray that God could talk with his heart. Another good example. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We just have to learn to look to Jesus for our example and not to the fellow Christians that we associate with because Jesus is our example. We all make mistakes. And I think, yes, over here. Um, I wonder if it goes back a step further than that, though, because um, these people trusted and were compliant because they had an understanding that God was good. You can't trust if you don't think God is good. You, you don't have to be told to praise God. You don't have to be told to be happy. Uh, you don't have to have seminars preaching it. If you have a fundamental underlying understanding that God is good and can be trusted. And you know him, yes. I, I think that's great. Did you all hear what she said? Everybody, yeah, good. I saw a couple more hands. Was David predestined to, because God saw that or knew that he was going to go this direction, or was David still a free moral agent, and he could have chosen? Yeah, completely different, different, different topic. Now we just kind of shifted onto another rail that I was trying to avoid, okay? And because uh, people, you know, I get emails every time we bring up this subject of of God's foreknowledge. I get emails about it. But uh, yeah, I believe that God's foreknowledge is not causation. God, for, what God foreknows, He does not cause. And so I believe David was a, a free moral agent. Yet God still knew what He was going to do and the choices He was going to make. Um, so, yes, and David was free to make any choice he wanted. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, when, when David sinned, that's what I love about David, is that he would cry out to God knowing, wow, I've sinned, please forgive me, please cleanse me. I mean, he would yearn for that cleansing. And that's, I think that's what God really wants, is someone who, who is sorrowful for what they do, like who acknowledges what they've done and realizes that I can't do this, I need to rely completely on you alone to do this. And when we have that willingness, God can work through that. I, I, yeah, I appreciate that so much. I think David's life is so instructive to us of the battle we all fight between the two antagonistic principles that are warring it out in our hearts. 
God's law of love, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend, and our inherent birth defect of survival of fittest, watch out for me first. And after David acts on his instincts to go for himself first and has this relationship with Bathsheba, his then initial action is to continue to watch out for self, and he's willing to kill in order to protect himself, which he did. And then after that experience, when he's brought to conviction, he surrendered his life to, to God and had an experience where after this lot, after these, these terrible incidents, he was a changed man. He didn't do this. His life was different. He never exploited it. We have a record of anyone again after that. And so that's, that's the hard change that, that we need to experience. We come to love God and others more than self. Yes? Are we as generous um, with that behavior uh, with contemporary figures like maybe Jim Baker? Very similar, you know, high, high profile person, major fall, very visible, crying, tears, remorse. Yeah, now I think that's, that's, that's exactly right, are we? Do we tend to extend grace to people? Do we look at each other? And the metaphor I like to use, it really goes back to, to how we see the whole, whole, how we see God's character, how we see the nature and problem with sin. I like the metaphor of an HIV ward. Everyone there has been born to HIV-infected parents, and so they're all HIV-infected. And if you know anything about HIV, it's a terminal condition, but it has manifest, it manifests itself in many different ways in different people. One person with HIV, with AIDS, might get a, a, a pneumocystis corona and a pneumonia. Somebody else might get a, a Carposi sarcoma, which is a lesion on the skin. Somebody else might get cytomegalovirus um, retinitis and, and, and blindness and optic neuritis and be blind. And so you've got the group over here who's got the lesions on the skin. You've got the group over here who's got pneumonia and coughing. You've got the group over here who's going blind. They all have the same disease, but the group that's going blind is criticizing those over there with their nasty coughs. And those with their nasty coughs is making fun of these people with their skin, skin lesions. Those with their skin lesions are critical of those people who are blind. And this is, we're all in this together. We all are conceived in sin, born in iniquity, it says in Scripture. We all are equal at the foot of the cross. We all need the same healing remedy that comes from Jesus Christ. And yet what happens is when we see somebody else struggling with a sin problem that's not our sin problem, well, they're not qualified to serve the Lord. I'm qualified, but you're not. And, and we have this type of thing going on. I think it's a gross misunderstanding of the, of the process where we should understand that we all have the same process, problem. We all need the same remedy. And if we're partaking the remedy... That doesn't make us better than the person who hasn't yet taken the remedy. Because we haven't done anything to procure it. We're just blessed to, be, to know about it and understand it and be participants with it. And our job then is to share it with others. Um, what about God's forgiveness? It says in the lesson quarterly that um, the Lord rejected Saul but forgave David even his worst mistakes. Did God withhold forgiveness from Saul? No. Did, did God... Uh, uh, was God ever unforgiving toward Saul? No. No. So, so the reason Saul was not forgiven was the people who put Christ on the cross. Similar example. Did Christ forgive them? Yes. Did they? Were they forgiven? No. See, they didn't experience forgiveness, even though God, Christ, forgave them because they didn't open their hearts. They remained his enemies. They were still wanting to crucify him. And so the process of forgiveness in the Bible is not a legal forgiveness. The process of forgiveness in the Bible is a transforming, reconciling process that changes the heart. Ellen White makes it very clear that forgiveness is more than legal pardon. It is a transforming process. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew your right spirit within me, she quotes. That's what a forgiving process is, and that can't happen by an edict from a throne. 
that happens when a heart comes into relationship with, with Christ. Then they experience it. But God is always forgiving. He, his heart is always towards, towards us, not against us. Monday's lesson, top paragraph, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, excuse me, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Think about these words of David, but in the context of worship. What does it mean the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart? What does it mean? Does it mean this is what God wants rather than blood sacrifices? Yes. Yes, you had a comment. Well, what I was going to say was Jesus is talking, and uh, it was Matthew who says, you know, if you fall in this rock, you will be broken, or if this rock falls on you, you'll be shattered. And what he wants is for your heart to be open and to, be, to realize, hey, I need you, you know, break me and then fix me. And when you shatter something, it's really, I mean, it's come to the point where it can't be fixed. It's because you've rejected it so much, but that's what he wants, someone who's open to be fixed. You know, who, who is willing to, to be rearranged. I love that. I love that. Willing to be rearranged, willing to be fixed. Does, does the, this idea, what the Lord wants, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, is it leading our minds to, con- to conceive that maybe the sacrificial system was designed to teach this? Was it designed to teach the, the altar and the sacrifices and all this that he's wanting to change and heal the heart? Or was it designed to teach something else? I don't want sacrifices. I want obedience. I want your love. I want that automatic obedience that comes out of a relationship with me, that you have discovered my true self of love and mercy and justice. That's true, but yet God does sacrifices. Yeah, Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does that sound like? Sounds like what we're just reading in our psalm. A change of heart. It's a heart change. Could we say that the lamb slain, that Christ, the, 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 the lamb with the capital L, the, the metaphorical lamb, the, the Christ, that the purpose of his mission to earth was to procure for mankind a new heart and right spirit? Well, I think ideally that was the experience of the person who brought the sacrifice is that if it was to change their, you know, they were to experience that emotional, you know, that emotional uh, pain of, of what they were doing, of what their actions or what ha- had caused. So the animal sacrifice would bring them to a sense of conviction. I mean, imagine taking your pet dog or your pet cat and having to kill it because of your sin. Would it bring a, a grief and heartbreaking experience to you if you had to do that? So I think that the, the experience of doing it with your own hand was designed, I think, to bring some type of a heartbreaking experience. Uh, translating that into Christ, though, when Christ came, was, was his mission to achieve something. Designed to, you know, does mankind without Christ have a heart problem? An alienation from God, a self-centered problem. Was Christ's mission somehow related in, in getting us a new heart and right spirit? 
Well, this is what it says in Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 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 Healed from what? What are we healed from? From what? Sickness of sin. Would that be a new heart and right spirit? Um, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about what that's saying. We might become the righteousness of God or we might be declared the righteousness of God. Is there a difference? Of course. There's a huge difference. God actually, I mean, this is what we were talking about in that quotation earlier, about why there's not much joy in Christianity. Because we have settled so far short of what God wants to do for us. We have settled so far short. We think the grace that God has for us is so much less than what it, what it actually is. That God wants to actually reproduce in us the heart and mind of Christ. That we can partake of the divine nature is what Scripture says. That he will write the law on our hearts and minds. That we can live a new life. A reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. First two sentences of the second paragraph. It says, as Christians, we take it as a given, or at least we should, that all humanity has fallen, sinful, degraded. This degradation and sinfulness includes each one of us individually. You agree? I agree. Do you agree we're all individually degraded yes is it our fault is anyone here to blame for the fact that they're a sinner what choice did you have where along the path of your life did you have a choice to avoid being a sinner no we're born in sin conceived in iniquity do you think god knows that yes are we guilty because we are this way. No. You, have a, you, have a, a, you have a child, and your child goes out into wild living, and your child in wild living becomes HIV infected, and then marries a girl who's HIV infected. And then they together have a grandchild, a child that's your grandchild. Your grandchild is born HIV infected. What did your grandchild do wrong? Is your grandchild at fault? <clears throat> is your grandchild guilty? But does your grandchild still have a condition? It's terminal. You see, Adam and Eve made this choice. We didn't have the choice. We are all born with a condition that without remedy is terminal. Dead in our trespass and sin, the scripture says. If we were born in this condition out of our choosing, what does God actually then hold us accountable for? Oh, she heard she said? I like that. Staying there. Yes, so the HIV-infected baby or grandchild grows up and there's a remedy that will cure and remedy the situation freely offered to your grandchild. Your grandchild refuses the remedy. Are they responsible for that? Yes. That's what we're held accountable for. Do we partake of Christ or not? Not that we have this problem. He knows it wasn't our fault. That's why Christ came. So listen to this. This is out of uh, Youth Instructor, October 17, 1895. It's really got some very, very powerful insights. It says, The Lord of heaven collected all the riches of the universe and laid them down in order to purchase the pearl of lost humanity. The Father gave all his divine resources into the hands of Christ in order that the richest blessings of heaven might be poured out upon a fallen race. 
God could not express greater love than he has expressed in giving the Son of his bosom to to this world. This gift was given to man to convince him that God had left nothing undone that he could do, that there is nothing held in reserve, but that all heaven has been poured out in one vast gift. The present and eternal happiness of man consists in receiving God's love and in keeping God's commandments. Christ is our Redeemer. He is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the fountain which, it, which we may be washed and cleansed from all impurity. Notice that. Is that metaphorical? I mean, it's, it's not... Well, my question is, is there a literal cleansing that we can experience in heart, character, and mind? Is that referring to... Or is it just a metaphor that it gives us hope, but it doesn't really happen in our hearts and minds? It's real, isn't it? Yes, we can be cleansed. This is, this is, this is, he came to convince us of God's love and to cleanse us. This is a two-part mission of Christ, to win us back to trust and to restore us to, to righteousness. This is what he came to do. He is the costly sacrifice that has been given to reconcil- for the reconciliation of man. I'm going to emphasize that, for the reconciliation of man. What does that mean? Who gets reconciled to who? Man gets reconciled to God. When Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, who got changed in that process? God or, or man? Adam. So the only problem now that separates us from from God is the problem in man. There's not a problem in God. God doesn't need to change. He changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Man needs to be changed. Unfortunately, there's this other theory taught that Christ died not only to reconcile man to God, but God to man. Think it through. Think it through. So the sacrifice has been given for the reconciliation of man. The universe of heaven, the world's unfallen, the fallen world, and the confederacy of evil cannot say that God could do more for the salvation of man than he has done. Notice who's doing all this. God is doing it. God was in the Son, reconciling the world for himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his Son but gave him up, how will he not along with him also give us all things? This is a completely different picture than Christ died to plead his blood to the Father to convince him to forgive us. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. Nothing more God could do. Never can his gift be surpassed. Never can he display a richer depth of love. Calvary represents his crowning work. It, it is man's part to respond to his great love by appropriating the great salvation the blessing of the Lord has made it possible for man to obtain. We are to show our appreciation of the wonderful gift of God by becoming partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are to show our gratitude to God by becoming a co-worker with Christ Jesus by representing his character to the world. In great mercy, the Lord has rolled back the thick darkness from before his throne that we may behold him as a God of love. What thick darkness has been before his throne? A darkness that causes people to see God as something other than a God of love. How many read my blog this week? It's called God is Love All the Time. God is Love All the Time. The reason I wrote that blog this week is because I got an email from Singapore. Somebody in Singapore um, got an email from somebody in the States referring them to a website that criticizes me by name. And the first criticism on the website is... Dr. Jennings does not believe God will use his power to inflict torturous pain upon his children to punish them for their sin. 
true? Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't believe that. I do believe the wicked will suffer terribly for their sin. Just as an HIV patient who refuses a remedy will suffer terribly in their sickness. See, the scripture is very clear. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Our position is that death comes from sin, from deviation from God's law, from separating ourselves from Him, pain, suffering, and death. God is a source of life, healing, and restoration. Sin is the source of pain, suffering, and death. The other view, no, God is the source. He's the great cosmic executioner. He will stand up and inflict pain and suffering. He will punish and crush, and He will kill in the end. Keep him alive in order to do that. And keep him alive in order to do that. These are not the same two pictures. Not at all. And so I wrote it, God is love all the time. Never a time, past, present, and future, where God will be anything other than who he is, which is love. He's in the saving business. So what is this dark cloud surrounding his throne that Christ came to roll back? This sight lies about God. It started about lies, it continues about lies. And our privilege is to represent him rightly, to take this light to the world that God is not like his enemies have made him out to be. Do you agree with this passage I just read about about the riches of heaven being poured out in Christ? There was nothing held in reserve that God could give. That this is a revelation of God's love for us. That God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. And you can add to it the the Scriptures, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Father and I are one. Yeah. Is it something to shout about? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it's something to shout about. It's exciting. It's powerful. Last paragraph. Uh, Any comments about that? Any discussion? Last paragraph. It says, Yet the joy comes from knowing that despite our fallen state... God loves us so much that Christ came and died, offering himself for us, and that his perfect life, his perfect holiness, his perfect character becomes credited to us by faith. Again, the theme of the everlasting gospel. Our worship should center not just on our own sinfulness, but on God's amazing solution for it, the cross. What do you think about that? Anybody have a thought about that? Perspective, an idea. Standard Christian presentation well after what we just read I like what they were saying joy comes from knowing that despite our fallen state God loves us so much that Christ came and died yes offered himself for us yes and uh, and that his perfect life his perfect holiness his perfect character becomes what assimilated available or accredited Assimilated. We become partakers. Partakers of the divine nature is what Scripture said. Partakers. There's no longer I that live, but Christ lives on my record books in heaven. In me. By the way, we talked about this before. If you want to take the view of record books in heaven getting changed, and you put all the inspired records uh, record that we have together, what is the avenue through which God changes our record book? What is on the record book according to to Ellen White? What's recorded there? She says as the, as the plate takes the impression, uh, the, photo, the photographic plate takes the impression of the face, so the record books of heaven take the impression of the character. And what is recorded in, recorded in heaven is our character in exact detail, our record book. 
So in order to change our record book, what has to change? Character. Our character. And so where does Christ work? I will write my law where, does the scripture say? In your heart and mind. And as he writes it in your heart and mind, guess what happens to the record book? The record book changes. It's like a medical record. Think of it this way. medical record has all the diagnostic studies showing your pathology, your, your, your metastatic cancer, where it's spread, all the, all the lab reports. And then you go to the doctor. Do you want the doctor to simply pull out the, the, the bad lab report and stick in white sheets of paper and clean up the record? Or do you want the doctor to go to you, heal you, and then the record will show your pathology, the record will show the intervention that the doctor made, and the record will show your cancer's in remission. You're clean, you're healthy, you're healed. How the records get changed is God working in us to change and restore his righteousness within our hearts. Anything else would be a lie. Yes? The problem is that we don't treat sinners like God treats sinners. We often want to punish those who are, we feel are guilty of crimes. And um, like when AIDS first became known to the United States, we shunned people with AIDS. We didn't let them come to school. We didn't want to take care of them. Uh, and we attribute those same attributes to God. And that is how God wants to treat sinners instead of his love for everyone. Scripture is filled, and inspiration is filled with what you just said about how we put on God our earthly view of what God's government looks like. No, there's no question about it. Wednesday's lesson, uh, top Bible verse says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's what it says in our more, as uh, Job 38.7. First question, who are the stars and suns? The other planets, the other I think the stars are angels and suns are the representative heads of all the worlds. Now, how do I get that? Um, it says, first off, the evidence for other worlds, Hebrews um, 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many ways, various ways by the prophets. And in these last days, he has also spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. The worlds. And we have other references that there are other worlds, intelligent worlds out there. Uh, evidence for the suns being the representative heads uh, and the stars being the angels. In Revelation 12, of course, the, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who led the whole world astray. He was hurled through the earth and his angels with him. Satan is the dragon and he took his angels. And then Revelation 12, 3 and 4, an enormous red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. So I think the stars are representing God's angels in heaven. And then what about the sons of God? Well, if you look through the genealogy of Christ and you read back, you know, the son of, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And I think this is what's happening in the book of Job is that you have the representative heads of God's worlds, the ones that he made it directly, like Adam was the son of God, coming to this heavenly council and the angels are there. And this is why Satan shows up. He's claiming, I'm here as the representative of earth. This is why God says, hold on, time out. Have you considered my servant Job? Job does not recognize you as, your rep- as, as representative of earth. You have no right in this council. And that's when the whole controversy starts. So I, I think what we have going on here is, is this, this great, this great um, uh, congress, if you will, in heaven, this great, uh, this great um, meeting where God's intelligent beings come to worship and and converse and interact with, with God. So what was going on that caused the heavenly beings to shout according to Job chapter 38, 7? 
creation of this world and, and creation of this world in the context of what was going on. What was going on in the universe when this world, this particular world was created? Controversy between Christ and Satan. Yeah, Lucifer had already started his rebellion in heaven. He'd already started alleging equality with Christ. He already started alleging that uh, God was unfair and, 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 and misused power. And they were shouting for joy. What was God doing? What was he revealing? What lessons do we learn from creation week about God's character? He shared creative power. He gave Adam and Eve power to procreate. He didn't selfishly withhold that power. He gave. He gave dominion, right to rule to Adam and Eve. In day one through six, we learn who who has power, who's the true creator. In day seven, what do we learn? The character of the one who wields the power. That after six days of creation, God says, universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence we've given. Take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. What does it say about God that in a war against his throne, he doesn't use power to force people to bow. He gives freedom to think. The Sabbath reveals his character. I found this week in the very first chapter of Steps to Christ, there was a quote about Satan leading. It says, Satan led men to conceive of God as a being whose chief attribute is stern justice, one who is a severe judge, a harsh, exacting creditor. He pictured the creator as a being who is watching with jealous eye to to discern the errors and mistakes of men, that he may visit judgments upon them. It was to remove this dark shadow by revealing to the world the infinite love of God that Jesus came to live among them. Wow. And if you hear the description of of the God that Satan tries to make God out to look like, who does that look like through history? Well, certainly it looks like Satan, no question. But through history, that's Baal, that's Zeus, that's Jupiter, that's Thor, that's, that's the pagan gods in the pantheon of history is exactly what's described there. I mean, chapter one of Steps to Christ, it just was so overwhelming to me how basic that was. Exactly, exactly, great. All right, now I promised Tina that we'd get to Thursday's lesson, and the question now in Thursday's lesson is about music. And so my question is, what determines whether music is appropriate for church or not appropriate for church? This, we will settle this question once and for all for the church today. <laughs> so what determines whether music is appropriate or inappropriate for church? Whether it's good music or bad music. Anybody want to volunteer step out on that stage first? I've got the gong. No. <laughs> Let's start with the words. Are the words focusing on God and His majesty and His love or are they focusing on me? Okay. So, first off, the message of the song. Is the message in the music uh, designed to, to help us praise and see God in his true nature and character, to lift our hearts toward him? Or is the message in some other, you know, what, what is the Philippians text, whatever is? Good, pure, praiseworthy, righteous, and all this, okay? This, think of these things. If it fills Philippians, then, then the words are okay. We, everybody comfortable with that? Okay. Yes, other. My thought is that sometimes the music can be so overwhelming that it distracts actually from what the words are saying. So you could have really good words, but such music that your mind can't really even wrap around those words. So even if the words and the message is good, the music, if it's uh, too intense, can overwhelm. Um, you mean like if the, the, if the uh, pipe organ is too loud? Yeah. 
<laughs> Whatever it is. That was too loud. For uh, I was, that was, that was tongue-in-cheek, guys. Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, culture has a big role in it. In what context uh, will something seem contrived and distracting? How about this, guys? How about this? Would the effect that the music has on the listener be of any relevance to its appropriateness or not? If the music contributes to more irritability, unruliness, rebelliousness, hedonism, violence, ugliness, unkindness, vulgarity, crudeness, could we conclude that such music is inappropriate? Conversely, if the music leads to greater peace, calmness, thoughtfulness, enhances reason, comprehension, learning, promotes themes of kindness, uh, self-sacrifice, giving, beneficence, could such music be appropriate? Will we conclude? And, and can music actually have that effect? Yes. And that being said, it's different for different generations. I mean, what touches my grandmother and what touches me and my brother are two totally different things. Yeah. When it comes to music and musical taste and what moves us toward the spirit, you know? And so, just with that being said, it's very difficult to play music that reaches everyone. Yes, yeah, so, so, but the question on the principle here, do you all, do, regardless of your generation, do you agree with the principle? That if you're listening to music that makes you more hedonistic, more vulgar, more irritable, more moody, more unkind, that regardless of the style, that music is, is inappropriate? Yeah. But the point is, what's too loud for somebody... Um, one person may not be too loud for somebody else. Volume is a different question. <laughs> okay. It's, it's the same principle, though. Because I can take the volume of whatever your favorite music is. I don't care what it is. I could, I could volume it loud enough that it would be painful and un- unpleasant. You pick your favorite song. I can put it on big enough speakers and big enough energy behind it, turn it up loud enough that it becomes actually torture to you and causes you pain. Well, I, I remember a study when I was in academy um, that said, okay... Um, Rock music is really bad for you because they did this. They did this all this study, and they said, "Well, people who listen to rock music, it, it, it hinders di- their digestion." Okay. Well, if those people didn't like rock music, it probably would hinder their digestion. If you played opera music while I was eating, I, I wouldn't do well for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's a matter of personal taste that comes into play. There's no question about that. Uh, my daughter used to have a boyfriend that uh, whenever he heard classical music, it would spook him out because the only context he'd heard it was with thriller movies. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was going to mention to you, and in closing, because we're not going to bring this to, to wraps in the few minutes that we had left to do it, the power that music has without the words to affect mood. And if you're not sure about that, next time you're watching a movie, turn the sound off. Watch the movie without the sound. Especially if you come to a point that's really intense and you're starting to get that, turn the sound off and watch immediately how everything calms. It's the music, more so than actually what's transpiring in the scene, that is causing the intense emotions that you're experiencing. And if you turn the sound off, everything goes, oh, wow, I can watch that now. It doesn't bother me. Woo! Okay? Music really affects the mood. And um, it can be used for good, and it can be used for ill. It can be used for either. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of of your son who brought us the light and truth about you and your your kingdom. Lord, we ask that the darkness will be pushed aside from our minds, that we can have a clear vision of your true nature and character, your principles, your methods. We ask that your spirit be poured out to write your law of love on our hearts and minds. May we partake of all that Christ has achieved for us. We we, We pray for the experience of loving you and loving others more than self. Give us skill and 
and ability to communicate your kingdom to this world. We want to see the world light, lighted with your truth, with your character, that you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.